Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Since our launch in 2020, it's been listened to nearly 175,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thank you to all our listeners. And if you're a first-time listener, welcome. Arab Digest is something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors, and we carry our podcasts without advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, what about making a small donation? Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. Yep, you heard that correctly. Two months for free. My guest today is Lina Khatib, who heads up the Middle East Institute at SOAS, where she's a professor in the Department of Politics and International Studies. Lina, welcome back to the AD Podcast. Thank you for having me back. Now, we are in this awful and very tragic situation in Gaza. Uh, but can we begin, Lena, by reminding our listeners of the economic and political state of play in Lebanon before the 7th of October at Hamas attack on Israel? Uh, before October 7, the situation in Lebanon was as bad as it has been for the last four years uh, since the financial meltdown began in Lebanon in 2019. The situation has been quite dire, huge inflation, huge currency depreciation, uh, political stagnation and vacuum. So no president, only a caretaker government, people concerned that the uh, term of the uh, head of the army is approaching expiration as well in January 2024. And meanwhile, there is no economic plan, even though the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, had uh, insisted that Lebanon uh, implement economic uh, reforms so that it can get uh, a loan from the IMF. There has been no political will uh, in Lebanon to do that and no alternative offered uh, by the authorities either. So people have been really making do if they are lucky enough to have relatives abroad to send them remittances or if they are able to make money from having businesses uh, that uh, bring them income in hard currency. But the majority of the population is not lucky like that. And Lebanon has not seen this kind of poverty uh, since, I, w- I would say, World War I, actually. Uh, that's the last time in, in, in Lebanon's uh, history in the kind of early 20th century onwards that, that Lebanon has witnessed widespread poverty at, at, at this scale. So in modern times, this is really quite devastating for the country. Yeah, and, and as you say, ordinary Lebanese already crushed by this wrecked economy and this political dysfunction, this paralysis, a caretaker government when what's needed is clear leadership. It isn't there. The mood now, since the start of the war, people must be terrified what that they could be next because I'm just thinking about last week, there were the Israeli airstrike that hit civilians and killed civilians, and there have been subsequent airstrikes. So what's the mood now? The mood remains one of anxiety, widespread anxiety. I mean, when the Hamas attack happened on October 7, 
people immediately in Lebanon thought, will this spread to Lebanon as well? Because they had lived through a, a very uh, intense war in 2006 when Hezbollah sparked an attack by Israel because Hezbollah went and kidnapped two Israeli soldiers from across the border. And, and that war was hugely devastating in, in a very concrete way uh, for Lebanon. So people were really worried whether Hezbollah was going to intervene and have a repeat of 2006. Now, as the conflict between Hamas and Israel played out, Hezbollah did start uh, intervening. We saw rockets launched from southern Lebanon into northern Israel. In the beginning, uh, the scope of this exchange was uh, relatively limited, but then it began spreading and it began reaching areas further inside Lebanese territory and inside Israeli territory. And uh, then we started seeing civilians being killed in Lebanon, not just uh, Hezbollah operatives, by Israeli strikes. And these kinds of incidents are ongoing. And therefore, a lot of people in southern Lebanon fled their homes because they were too scared about, uh, you know, uh, things really uh, affecting them in, 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 in that way. And all over Lebanon, people remain anxious. Uh, the Hezbollah leader, Hassan Nasrallah, gave a speech at one point, and everybody was really concerned that he was going to declare all at war in the speech. He did not and people breathed a sigh of relief. However, the kind of build-up to that speech was full of social media propaganda, basically released by Hezbollah, um, which only, in my view, served to have uh, psychological warfare launched on the Lebanese people as opposed to scaring uh, the Israelis. The, the people who were more scared were the Lebanese. And that's all... Nasrallah achieved in this propaganda uh, campaign. And uh, now, you know, uh, people remain worried that things might spiral out of control and Lebanon would not be spared as a result. So you've got that fear of what could come next. But but what about uh, how is that balanced with support for the Palestinians? And I'm wondering, too, post 7th of October, how is Hamas itself being viewed in Lebanon? Well, uh, it's a mixed bag. When it comes to the Palestinian cause, there is widespread support in Lebanon, widespread sympathy and empathy. And and I don't think this is going to change. If anything, uh, what Israel is doing in Gaza is only making people in Lebanon more sympathetic to the plight of Palestinians. But when it comes to Hamas, Hamas does not enjoy widespread support in Lebanon. Hamas is seen as an ally of Hezbollah's, as a group supported by Iran, and therefore only part of the Lebanese population views Hamas favorably. And this is the part of the Lebanese population that supports Hezbollah. Beyond support for Hezbollah, uh, you know, you, you will not really see popular support for Hamas. And so in some ways, we have a similar dynamic to that in 2006, when Hezbollah was engaged with war uh, with Israel. People were very critical of Israel's attacks on Lebanon at that time, but that did not mean that they had become supporters of Hezbollah. Uh, And I think it's a similar thing now. Everybody's critical in Lebanon of what Israel is doing, but that does not mean that they have become 
uh, Hamas supporters. One of the key things for the Lebanese now is the material cost that they would have to pay were Lebanon to be part of this equation. Uh, with the financial crisis having already devastated Lebanon, the last thing the Lebanese want is to pay yet another price. And, and they know that Lebanon can't afford to uh, have reconstruction if this war spreads to Lebanon. Yeah, yeah, it's a terrifying thought that, that it could spread. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and my guest, Lina Khatib, director of the Middle East Institute at SOAS. We are a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. Would you like to support that voice? If the answer is yes, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. Let me move on to this question, Lena. There's an assumption, and it's very much prevalent in the U.S. State Department, that Iran is ultimately responsible for the 7th of October massacre, and that through its proxies, Hamas, Hezbollah, Yemen's Houthis, and others, it seeks regional hegemony. Is it the case that when Tehran presses a button, these militias leap to attention? And and what are the dangers, um, um, you know, for the U.S. and others holding such an assumption, which seems to me to be quite simplistic, actually? It's not as simple as Iran being uh, kind of the big boss with everyone obeying. All these groups have local agency in various uh, degrees or to various degrees. And they are able to uh, act when they feel they need to act. However, when it comes to decisions of war and peace, and here we're not talking about individual battles, individual uh, attacks that they you know, may choose to do, we're talking all-out war. When it comes to all-out war scenarios, these groups will have agreed with Iran conducting something of that scale. And this leads me to believe that when it comes to the October 7 attack, it's not as simple as Iran telling Hamas to do it. I still don't think Iran told Hamas to do it. But Iran had provided Hamas with uh, years of uh, support, uh, financial support, training, military support, coordination between Hamas and Hezbollah in preparation for a large scale operation. Whether Iran uh, uh, participated directly in the October 7 plan on, on that day and in the kind of uh, short period in the run-up to that attack is, is besides the point, because Iran is one of Hamas's big backers. And there's no way Hamas would have been able to conduct an operation of that scale without all this Iranian support. So I think the situation is definitely more more nuanced than Iran giving orders. However, the Iranian role is significant and is definitely a factor that needs to be taken into consideration when we think about what is actually happening. I suppose it's a question, though, about how much you place fully the blame on Iran, because this thing could heat up very, very quickly then if the uh, the Iranians are, you know, the fingers pointed at them. And indeed, if you look at it, uh, at Iran, the, the hardliners, they play this anti-American, anti-colonialism line. It seems to me that, you know, if you avoid the nuances, you increase the dangers, the hazards of this thing blowing up either accidentally or otherwise. I mean, what Iran does not want 
is for Israel and the U.S. to attack Iran itself. Iran's model has always been when it started supporting these uh, militants abroad, meaning in 1982 onwards, uh, with Hezbollah being the first such group, the model has been have these groups be on the front line, let them engage in battles, but make sure that Iran itself does not get hit. And, And this is basically the proxy model for Iran. Fight the battles away from Iran itself. And this has not changed. So now... I don't think that we what we are witnessing, even though there have been incidents in Syria and Iraq and in Yemen, you know, involving the Houthis and uh, other Iran-backed groups in those countries. Um, we've seen an escalation of attacks on U.S. targets and some trying to target Israel. I don't think this is a case of Iran rallying all its uh, uh, groups in the region to say, let's have a coordinated regional war. I think it's more a case of these different actors having their own domestic objectives. And the situation now between Israel and Hamas is providing a useful framework that would allow them to act to meet those domestic objectives. And meanwhile, Iran does not want things to spiral completely out of control so that the US will have to intervene because Israel finds itself fighting a war of many fronts. So this is the situation right now. I think uh, everyone is, is mindful of that. But of course, the risk of things spiraling out of control remains at large. Well, in- How do you read Hezbollah's response thus far? And what risk is there that Hezbollah would engage in a major military operation against Israel? It's still unlikely because Hezbollah is also mindful of the domestic sentiment uh, inside Lebanon. Uh, Hezbollah's own supporters also do not want Hezbollah to really engage in all-out war that would destroy southern Lebanon again and destroy parts of Beirut, like what happened in 2006. As I said, the price will be extremely high with no reconstruction kind of prospects on the horizon. I mean, in 2006, Various Gulf countries jumped to the rescue and pumped money into Lebanon for reconstruction. These same Gulf countries today have other priorities. They have their own domestic concerns to divert their resources to. No one has indicated in any way, even before October 7, that they were going to rescue Lebanon financially, even though a lot of Lebanese politicians still very blindly think that Gulf countries are going to somehow send financial aid to Lebanon. They're not going to do that. Um, And so if there is war, again, they're not going to jump to the rescue. And so Hezbollah knows that any all-out war in Lebanon means complete devastation uh, that's going to just basically be be the uh, uh, status quo in Lebanon for a very long time. And and that is not in anyone's interests. And is it the case that Hezbollah has lost a lot of uh, its support because of it's very much uh, engaged in this in an intransigent approach to the political uh, dynamics within Lebanon. Is support uh, beginning to drain away even from some of its more ardent backers? The hardened backers still support Hezbollah. But the outer circle of, of support for Hezbollah is shaky right now. I mean, it started to shake 
to a degree um, with the financial crisis in 2019. And then when Hezbollah was clear in not having an economic plan for Lebanon either, and when Hezbollah pays its own fighters in US dollars when the rest of the Shia community that is not uh, employed by Hezbollah in any way earns in Lebanese lira, the um, gap between the haves and have-nots within Hezbollah's supporters uh, in in the Shia community in particular uh, became bigger than ever. And uh, Hezbollah is not able to pay all of its supporters. It doesn't uh, employ all of them. And, and, you know, it has tried to offer some financial kind of support for them, such as giving some people discount cards for uh, Hezbollah-run supermarkets and things like that. But this is not enough, you know, to sustain basically a third of the Lebanese population if we're just talking about the Shia community. And therefore... Support for Hezbollah has definitely shrunk. And as a result of this build up to uh, Nasrallah's speech, you know, when uh, he was in a way indirectly uh, uh, hinting that something big might happen and people feeling very anxious, all this served to, uh, I think, upset people uh, rather than rally them to, to support Hezbollah more. Um, however, we shouldn't we shouldn't think that Hezbollah is 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 kind of losing its hardcore supporters. They, they remain very loyal. Mm-hmm. What I'm hearing from you is that it's unlikely that Hezbollah would intervene in a major way to create a second front. So, I'm just thinking, and, and you made a very interesting point about Nasrallah and, and the build up to the speech and the anxiety that produced, and then the speech comes out and it's you know kind of calming things down rather than ramping them up. But is there a red line, do you think, for Hassan Nasrallah? When it comes to red lines, I think if if Israel started bombing areas outside of southern Lebanon, uh, for example, if it bombed the airport uh, in Beirut or if it bombed areas in Beirut itself, then that would definitely be a red line uh, for Hezbollah. If things in uh, the Palestinian context escalate so that there is a front, uh, for example, outside of Gaza and the West Bank, uh, maybe that could also be a, a another red line for Hezbollah, because then, then perhaps Hamas would need this uh, kind of backup. But for now, Hezbollah also does not want Hamas to lose the kind of uh, leading role it is it is enjoying in this in this battle with Israel and this also gives Hezbollah at the same time a get out clause so Hezbollah uh, as Nasrallah said in his speech sees Hamas as uh, getting the glory uh, in this battle and uh, and and that they are doing this for themselves and 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 therefore any Hezbollah interference at at a kind of high level would show that Hamas is not able to to kind of handle things on its own which in turn means that Hamas is weak and that is not in Hamas's interest or Hezbollah's interest or Iran's interest but at the same time this serves to kind of uh, give Hezbollah an excuse for why it's not intervening in a major way but if Hamas suddenly finds itself uh, squeezed militarily, then, you know, that could be uh, a red line. Mm-hmm. For the time being, then it's Hamas who is getting the glory, but also taking significant military uh, losses, whereas Hezbollah is relatively keeping its its powder dry. 
let me finally ask you, Lina, your prognosis of what happens next, and also what is the best case scenario for Lebanon in the days and the weeks ahead as this war in Gaza plays out? Um, one thing to bear in mind is that when it comes to what winning means for Hamas, even if Hamas loses militarily, they can still claim victory because of the unprecedented attack that they already launched on October 7, like Hezbollah in 2006 declaring victory against Israel we may well see Hamas declare victory. So that's something to bear in mind. The best case for uh, Lebanon is if this war ends uh, ASAP as soon as possible, because the, the more it continues, the, the greater the risk of things uh, spinning out of control. So the best case scenario is for a ceasefire to be declared and for political negotiations to begin. Uh, the worst case scenario is, as I said, for Israel to uh, be reckless and decide to attack Lebanon. This is the worst case scenario for Lebanon, because then th- that's it. It's, it's, it's all out war. Right, right. And uh, if Hezbollah comes in heavily, then what does Iran do? Oh, if Hezbollah uh, in, engages in, in military uh, confrontation, then Iran will do what it did in 2006, which is uh, continue to supply uh, Hezbollah with money and weapons. And, and, and that's it. Um, again, even if Hezbollah gets involved, Iran itself will, will not want to be involved. It will try its best not to. However, if that scenario were to happen, then the US is not going to let Israel just uh, fight a war of two fronts, then I think we will see uh, the US intervene. And that does mean attacking Iran. So what I'm saying is, it's not Iran that's going to take the first step. It's the US and Israel who will most likely attack Iran in that kind of scenario. And Iran is very aware of that. And I think this is the biggest deterrent for Hezbollah. And it's the reason why I still don't think that Hezbollah is going to intervene in a very big way, because then the price will be paid, not just by Lebanon, but also by Iran. Mm. Okay, well, the the times are very dangerous, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, um, unfortunately, in this region, we have to remember that for as long as the Palestinian-Israeli conflict remains a conflict, these kinds of scenarios are possible and instability in the region continues. This this conflict that has been, you know, happening for decades is a huge part in why the Middle East is not stable. And um, so I think, you know, it's high time for the international community to really take this conflict seriously and lead it to a close. Of course, this is very difficult in the current context, but this is the only way forward for this region if we're going to see stability in the Middle East. We'll leave it there, Lena. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Lena Khatib, director of the Middle East Institute at SOAS. You may have noticed that we bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. Will you consider supporting our independent voice through a small donation? Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. 
The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, commentators, and writers. Contributors like Lena. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search our library of nearly 200 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. Our podcast guests provide unique insights. Insights you simply will not find anywhere else. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.